Chapter 5 of On Secret Service, Detective Mystery Stories Based on Real Cases Solved by Government Agents, by William Nelson Taft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Phyllis Dodge, Smuggler Extraordinary Bill Quinn tossed aside his evening paper and, cocking his feet upon a convenient chair, remarked that, now that peace was finally signed, sealed, and delivered, there ought to be a big boom in the favorite pastime of the idle rich. "'Meaning what?' I inquired. "'Smuggling, of course,' said Quinn, who only retired from Secret Service when an injury received in action forced him to do so. "'Did you ever travel on a liner when four out of every five people on board didn't admit that they were trying to beat the customs officials one way or another, and the only reason the other one didn't follow suit was because he knew enough to keep his mouth shut? That's how Uncle Sam's detectives pick up a lot of clues. The amateur crook never realizes that silence is golden and that oftentimes speech leads to a heavy fine.' Now that the freedom of the seas is an accomplished fact, the whole crew of would-be smugglers will doubtless get to work again, only to be nabbed in port. Inasmuch as ocean travel has gone up with the rest of the cost of living, it'll probably be a sport confined to the comparatively rich for a couple of years, anyhow. It was different in the old days. Every steamer that came in was loaded to the eyes, and you never knew when you were going to spot a hidden necklace or a packet of diamonds that wasn't destined to pay duty. There were thrills to the game, too, believe me. Why, just take the case of Phyllis Dodge. Mrs. Dodge, Quinn continued, after he had packed his pipe to a condition where it was reasonably sure to remain lighted for some time, was, theoretically at least, a widow. Her full name, as it appeared on many passenger lists during the early part of 1913, was Mrs. Mortimer C. Dodge of Cleveland, Ohio. When the customs officials came in to look into the matter, they weren't able to find anyone in Cleveland who knew her. But then it's no penal offense to give the purser a wrong address, or even a wrong name for that matter. While there may have been doubts about Mrs. Dodge's widowhood, or whether she had ever been married for that matter, there could be none about her beauty. In the language of the classics, she was there. Black hair, brown eyes, a peaches and cream complexion that came and went while you watched it, and a figure that would have made her fortune in the follies. Joe Gregory said afterward that trailing her was one of the easiest things he had ever done. To get the whole story of Phyllis and her extraordinary cleverness, extraordinary because it was so perfectly obvious, we'll have to cut back a few months before she came on the scene. For some time the Treasury Department had been well aware that a number of precious stones, principally pearl necklaces, were being smuggled into the country. Agents abroad, the department maintains a regular force in Paris, London, Rotterdam, and other European points, you know, had reported the sale of the jewels 
and they had turned up a few weeks later in New York or Chicago. But the Customs Service never considers it wise to trace stones back from their owners on this side. There are too many ramifications to any well-planned smuggling scheme, and it is too easy for someone to claim that he had found them in a life-forgotten chest in the attic, or some such story as that. The burden of proof rests upon the government in a case of this kind, and except in the last extremity, it always tries to follow the chase from the other end, to nab the smuggler in the act and thus build up a jury-proof case. Reports of the smuggling cases had been filtered into the department half a dozen times in as many months, and the matter finally got on the chief's nerves to such a degree that he determined to thrash it out if it took every man he had. In practically every case, the procedure was the same, though the only principles known were different each time. Rotterdam, for example, would report, Pearl necklace valued at $40,000 sold today to man named Silverberg. Have reason to believe it is destined for states. And then would follow a technical description of the necklace. Anywhere from six weeks to three months later, the necklace would turn up in the possession of a jeweler who bore a shady reputation. Sometimes the article wouldn't appear at all which might have been due to the fact that they weren't brought into this country, or that the receivers had altered them beyond recognition. However, the European advices pointed to the latter supposition, which didn't soothe the chief's nerves the least bit. Finally, along in the middle of the spring of 1913, there came a cable from Paris announcing the sale of the famous Echium Emerald, a gorgeous stone that you couldn't help recognizing once you got the description. The purchaser was reported to be an American named Williamson. He paid cash for it, so his references and his antecedents were not investigated at the time. Sure enough, it wasn't two months later when a report came in from Chicago that a pork-made millionaire had added to his collection a stone which tallied to the description of the Echium Emerald. "'Shall we go after it from this end, Chief?' inquired one of the men on the job in Washington. "'We can make the man who bought it tell us where he got it, and then sweat the rest of the game out of the go-betweens.' "'Yes,' snorted the Chief, "'and be laughed out of court on some trumped-up story framed by a well-paid lawyer. Not a chance.' I'm going to land those birds and land them with the goods. We can't afford to take any chances with this crowd. They've evidently got money and brains, a combination that you've got to stay awake nights to beat. No, we'll nail them in New York just as they're bringing the stones in. Send a wire to Gregory to get on the job at once and tell New York to turn loose every man they've got though they've been working on this case long enough, heaven knows. The next morning, when Gregory and his society manor strolled into the custom house in New York, he found the place buzzing. Evidently the instructions from Washington had been such as to make the entire force fear for their jobs, 
unless the smuggling combination was broken up quickly. It didn't take Joe very long to get the details. They weren't many, and he immediately discarded the idea of possible collusion between the buyers of the stones abroad. It looked to be a certainty on the face of it, but once you had discovered that, what good did it do you? It wasn't possible to jail a man just because he bought some jewels in Europe, and, besides, the orders from Washington were very clear that the case was to be handled strictly from this side. At least, the final arrest was to be made on American soil to avoid extradition complications and the like. So, when Joe got all the facts, they simply were that some valuable jewels had been purchased in Europe and had turned up in America, without going through the formality of visiting the Custom House, anywhere from six weeks to three months later. "'Not much to work on,' grumbled Gregory, "'and I suppose, as usual, that the chief will be as peevish as Hades if we don't nab the guilty party within the week.' "'It's more than possible,' admitted one of the men who had handled the case. Gregory studied the dates on which the jewels had been purchased and those on which they had been located in this country for a few moments in silence. Then, "'Get me copies of the passenger lists of every steamer that has docked here in the past year,' he directed. Of course, it's possible that these things might have been landed at Boston or Philadelphia, but New York's the most likely port. When the lists had been secured, Gregory stuffed them into his suitcase and started for the door. "'Where you going?' inquired McMahon, the man in charge of the New York office. "'Up to the Adirondacks for a few days,' Gregory replied." "'What's the idea? Think the stuff is being brought over by airplane and landed inland? Liners don't dock upstate, you know.' "'No,' said Gregory. "'But that's where I'm going to dock until I can digest this stuff,' and he tapped his suitcase. "'Somewhere in this bunch of booklets there's a clue to this case, and it's up to me to spot it. Goodbye.' Five days later, when he sauntered back into the New York office, the suitcase was surprisingly light. Apparently, every one of the passenger lists had vanished. As a matter of fact, they had been boiled down to three names which were carefully inscribed in Joe's notebook. "'Did you pick up any jewels in the Catskills?' was the question that greeted him when he entered. "'Wasn't in the Catskills.' he growled. Went up to a camp in the Adirondacks. Colder in blazes. Any more stuff turn up? No, but a wire came from Washington just after you left to watch out for a hundred thousand dollars string of pearls sold at a private auction in London last week to an American named... I don't care what his name was, Gregory cut in. What was the date they were sold? The 16th. Gregory glanced at the calendar. And today is the 22nd, he mused. What boats are due in the next three days? 
The Cretic docks this afternoon, and the Tasmania ought to get in tomorrow. That'll be all until the end of the week. Right, snapped Gregory. Don't let a soul off the Cretic until I've had a look at her passenger list. It's too late to go down the harbor now, but not a person's to get off that ship until I've had a chance to look em over. Also, cable for a copy of the Tasmania's passenger list. Hurry it up. Less than ten minutes after he had slipped on board the Cretic, however, Gregory gave the signal which permitted the gangplank to be lowered and the passengers to proceed as usual, except for the fact that the luggage of everyone and the person of not a few were searched with more than the average carefulness. But not a trace of the pearls was found, as Joe had anticipated. A careful inspection of the passenger list and a few moments with the purser had convinced him that none of his three suspects were on board. Shortly after he returned to the office, the list of the Tasmania's passengers began to come over the cables. Less than half a page had been received when Gregory uttered a sudden exclamation, reached for his notebook, compared a name in it with one which appeared on the cabled report, and indulged in the luxury of a deep-throated chuckle. "'Greg's got a nibble somewhere,' commented one of the bystanders. "'Yes,' admitted his companion. "'But landin' the fish is a different matter. "'Whoever's on the other end of that line is a mighty cagey individual.' But though he undoubtedly overheard the remark, Gregory didn't seem to be the least bit worried. In fact, his hat was at a more rakish angle than usual and his cane fairly whistled through the air as he wandered up the avenue half an hour later. The next the customs force heard of him was when he boarded the quarantine boat the next morning, clambering on the liner a little later with all the skill of a pilot. "'You have a passenger on board by the name of Dodge,' he informed the purser, after he had shown his badge. "'Mrs. Mortimer C. Dodge.' "'What do you know about her?' "'Not a thing in the world,' said the purser, "'except that she is a most beautiful and apparently attractive woman. "'Crossed with us once before.' "'Twice,' corrected Gregory. "'Came over in January and went right back.' "'That's right,' said the purser. "'So she did. "'I'd forgotten that.' "'But beyond that fact, there isn't anything that I can add.' "'Seem to be familiar with anyone on board?' "'Not particularly. Mixes with the younger married set, "'and I've noticed her on deck with the Mortons quite frequently. "'Probably met them on her return trip last winter. "'They were along then, if I remember rightly.' "'Thanks,' said the customs operative. You needn't mention anything about my inquiries, of course. And he mixed with the throng of newspaper reporters who were picking up news in various sections of the big vessel. When the Tasmania docked, Gregory was the first one off. Search Mrs. Mortimer C. Dodge to the skin, he directed the matron. Take down her hair, 
tap the heels of her shoes, and go through all the usual stunts, but be as gentle as you can about it. Say that we've received word that some uncut diamonds, not pearls, mind you, are concealed on the Tasmania, and that orders have been given to go over everybody thoroughly. Pass the word along the line to give out the same information, so she won't be suspicious. I don't think you'll find anything, but you never can tell. At that, Joe was right. The matron didn't locate a blessed thing out of the way. Mrs. Dodge had brought in a few dutiable trinkets, but they were all down on her declaration, and within the hour she was headed uptown in a taxi, accompanied by a maid who had met her as she stepped out of the customs office. Not far behind them trailed another taxi, top up, and Gregory's eyes glued to the window behind the chauffeur. The first machine finally drew up at the Aster, and Mrs. Dodge and the maid went in, followed by a pile of luggage which had been searched until it was moral certainty that not a needle would have been concealed in it. Gregory waited until they were out of sight and then followed. In answer to his inquiries at the desk, he learned that Mrs. Dodge had stopped at the hotel several times before, and the house detective assured him that there was nothing suspicious about her conduct. "'How about the maid?' inquired Gregory. "'Don't know a thing about her, either. Except that she is the same one she had before. Pretty little thing, too, though not as good-looking as her mistress.' For the next three days, Joe hung around the hotel or followed the lady from the Tasmania wherever she went. Something in the back of his head, call it intuition or a hunch or whatever you please, but it's the feeling that a good operative gets when he's on the right trail, told him that he was warm, as the kids say. Appearances seem to deny that fact. Mrs. Dodge went only to the most natural places, a few visits to the stores, a couple to fashionable modesties and milliners, and some drives through the park, always accompanied by her maid, and always in the most sedate and open manner. But on the evening of the third day, the house detective tipped Joe off that his prey was leaving in the morning. "'Guess she's going back to Europe.' reported the houseman, gave orders to have a taxi ready at nine and her trunks taken down to the docks before them. Better get busy if you want to land her. I'm not ready for that just yet, Gregory admitted with a scowl. When Mrs. Dodge's taxi drove off the following morning, Joe wasn't far away, and acting on orders which he had delivered over the phone, no less than half a dozen operatives watched the lady and the maid very closely when they reached the dock. Not a thing came of it, however. Both of them went to the stateroom which had been reserved, and the maid remained to help with the unpacking, until the all ashore that's going ashore was bellowed through the boat. Then she left and stood on the pier until the ship had cleared the dock. It beats me, muttered Gregory, but I'm willing to gamble my job that I'm right, 
and that night he wired to Washington to keep a close lookout for the London pearls, adding that he felt certain they would turn up before long. "'In that case,' muttered the chief at the other end of the wire, "'why in heaven's name didn't he get them when they came in?' Sure enough, not a fortnight had passed before St. Louis reported that a string of pearls, perfectly matched, answering to the description of the missing jewels, had been offered for sale there through private channels. The first reaction was a telegram to Gregory that fairly burned the wires, short but to the point. "'Either the man who smuggled that necklace or your job in ten days,' it read." and Gregory replied, "'Give me three weeks and you'll have one or the other.' Meanwhile he had been far from inactive. Still playing his hunch that Phyllis Dodge had something to do with a smuggling game, he had put in time cultivating the only person on this side that appeared to know her, the maid. It was far from a thankless task, for Alice—she spelled it with a Y— was pretty and knew it. Furthermore, she appeared to be entirely out of her element in a cheap room on 24th Street. Most of the time she spent in wandering up the avenue, and it was there that Gregory made her acquaintance, through the expedient of bumping her bag out of her hands and restoring it with one of his courtly bows. The next minute he was strolling alongside, remarking on the beauty of the weather. But although he soon got to know Alice well enough to take her to the theater and to the cabaret, it didn't seem to get him anywhere. She was perfectly frank about her position, said she was a hairdresser by trade, and that she acted as lady's maid to a Mrs. Dodge, who spent the better part of her time abroad. In fact, she said, Mrs. Dodge is only here three or four days every two months or so. And she pays you for your time in between? Oh, yes, Alice replied. She's more than generous. I should say she was, Gregory thought to himself, but he considered it best to change the subject. During the days that followed, Joe exerted every ounce of his personality in order to make the best possible impression. Posing as a man who had made money in the West, he took Alice everywhere and treated her royally. Finally, when he considered the time ripe, he injected a little love into the equation and hinted that he thought it was about time to settle down and that he appeared to have found the proper person to settle with. But there, for the first time, Alice balked. She didn't refuse him, but she stated in so many words that she had a place that suited her for the time being, and that, until the fall at least, she preferred to keep on with it. "'That suits me all right,' declared Gregory. "'Take your time about it. Meanwhile, we'll continue to be good friends and trail around together, eh?' Certainly, said Alice. Uh, that is, until Tuesday. Tuesday? inquired Joe. What's coming off Tuesday? Mrs. Dodge will arrive on the Atlantic, 
was the reply. And I'll have to be with her for three days at least. Three days, commenced Gregory, and halted himself. It wasn't wise to show too much interest. But that night he called the chief on long distance and inquired if there had been any recent reports of suspicious jewel sales abroad. Yes, came the voice from Washington. Pearls again. Loose ones this time. And your three weeks' grace is up at noon Saturday. The click that followed as the receiver hung up was finality itself. The same procedure, altered in a few minor details, was followed when Mrs. Dodge landed. Again she was searched to the skin. Again her luggage was gone over with microscopic care, and again nothing was found. This time she stayed at the Knickerbocker, but Alice was with her as usual. Deprived of his usual company and left to his own devices, Gregory took a long walk up the drive and tried to thrash out the problem. "'Comes over on a different boat almost every trip,' he thought. "'So that eliminates collusion with any of the crew. "'Doesn't stay at the same hotel two times running, so there's nothing there. "'Has the same maid and always returns.' Then it was that motorists on Riverside Drive were treated to the sight of a young and extremely prepossessing man, dressed in the height of fashion, throwing his hat in the air and uttering a yell that could be heard for blocks, after which he disappeared hurriedly in the direction of the nearest drug store. A hasty search through the phone book gave him the number he wanted, the offices of the Black Star Line. "'Is Mr. McPherson, the purser of the Atlantic, there?' he inquired. Then, "'Hello. Mr. McPherson? This is Gregory, Customs Division. You remember me, don't you? Worked on the Maitland Diamond case with you two years ago. Wonder if you could tell me something I want to know. Is Mrs. Mortimer C. Dodge booked to go back with you tomorrow?' "'She is?' What's the number of her stateroom? And, uh, what was the number of the room she had coming over? I thank you. If the motorists whom Gregory had startled on the drive had seen him emerge from the phone booth, they would have marveled at the look of keen satisfaction and relief that was spread over his face. The cat that swallowed the canary was tired of life compared with Joe at that moment. Next morning, the customs operatives were rather surprised to see Gregory stroll down to the Atlantic dock about ten o'clock. "'Thought you were somewhere uptown on the chief's pet case,' said one of them. "'So I was,' answered Joe. "'But that's practically cleaned up.' With that he went aboard, and no one saw him until just before the all-ashore call. Then he took up his place beside the gangplank, with three other men placed nearby in case of accident. "'Follow my lead,' he directed. "'I'll speak to the girl. Two of you stick here to make certain that she doesn't get away, and you, Bill, 
Beat it on board, then, and tell the captain that the boat's not to clear until we give the word. We won't delay him more than ten minutes at the outside. When Alice came down the gangplank a few minutes later, in the midst of people who had been saying good-bye to friends and relatives, she spotted Joe waiting for her and started to move hurriedly away. Gregory caught up with her before she had gone a dozen feet. "'Good morning, Alice,' he said. "'Thought I'd come down to meet you. "'What have you got in the bag there?' indicating her maid's handbag. "'Not... not a thing,' said the girl, flushing. Just then the matron joined the party, as previously arranged, and Joe's tone took on its official hardness. "'Hurry up and search her. We don't want to keep the boat any longer than we have to.' Less than a minute later the matron thrust her head out of the door long enough to report, "'We found em, the pearls. She had em in the front of her dress.' Gregory was up the gangplank in a single bound. A moment later he was knocking at the door of Mrs. Dodge's stateroom. The instant the knob turned he was inside, informing Phyllis that she was under arrest on a charge of bringing jewels into the United States without the formality of paying duty. Of course the lady protested, but the Atlantic sailed less than ten minutes behind scheduled time without her. Promptly at twelve, the phone on the desk of the chief of the Customs Division in Washington buzzed noisily. "'Gregory speaking,' came through the receiver. "'My time's up, and I've got the party you want. Claims to be from Cleveland and sails under the name of Mrs. Mortimer C. Dodge, first name Phyllis.' She's confessed and promises to turn state's evidence if we'll go light with her. That, added Quinn, was the finish of Mrs. Dodge, so far as the government was concerned. In order to land the whole crew, the people who were handling the stuff on this side, as well as the ones who were mixed up in the scheme abroad, they let her go scot-free with the proviso that she's to be rushed to Atlanta if she ever pokes her nose into the United States again. The last I heard of her she was in Monaco, tangled up in a blackmail case there. Gregory told me all about it some time later. Said that the first hunch had come to him when he studied the passengers' lists in the wilds of the Adirondacks. Went there to be alone and concentrate. He found that of all the people listed, only three, two men and a Mrs. Dodge, had made the trip frequently in the past six months. The frequency of Mrs. Dodge's travel evidently made it impracticable for her to use different aliases. Someone would be sure to spot her. But it wasn't until that night on Riverside Drive that the significance of the data struck him. Each time she took the same boat on which she had come over. Did she have the same stateroom? The phone call to McPherson established the fact that she did, this time at least. The rest was almost as obvious as the original plan. The jewels were brought aboard, passed on to Phyllis, and she tucked them away somewhere in her stateroom. 
her bags and her person could, of course, be searched with perfect safety. Then what was more natural than that her maid should accompany her on board when she was leaving? Nobody ever pays any attention to people who board the boat at this end, so Alice was able to walk off with the stuff under the very eyes of the customs authorities, and they found later that she had the nerve to place it in the hands of the government for the next twenty-four hours. She sent it by registered mail to Pittsburgh, and it was passed along through an underground fence channel until a prospective purchaser appeared. Perfectly obvious and perfectly simple. That's why the plan succeeded until Gregory began to make love to Alice and got the idea that Mrs. Dodge was going right back to Europe hammered into his head. It had occurred to him before, but he hadn't placed much value on it. Oh, yawned Quinn, I'm getting dry. Trot out some grape juice and put on that Chrysler record. Drigo's Serenade. I love to hear it. Makes me think of the time when they landed that scoundrel Weimer. End of chapter 5